Okay, so we're going to continue on, and I'm just not going to spend a lot of time reviewing what we covered last, last Sunday. And so we will we'll have a session today, then we will have a, another session next week, and we'll come back for the final session at, uh, in August. So I want to, I was a little bit concerned as to, you know, the, the way the, the degradation of the image from my laptop to the screen there. And one of the things that I want to do is to post this series also on my YouTube channel. And so I want to give a, a, a kudos to John because he did such a great job of splicing last Sunday's video with the PowerPoint slides. They're crystal clear, they're right there. And so thanks again, John. And I want to encourage you because th these images are very, they're hard to see up on the screen behind me, to take some time and go to the Sovereign Grace Church website where, uh, where it's posted, but it's also at the SGC YouTube page, right? So it's there and you can see the slides and if you need, you can, you know, closed caption is available, it's all there, so. I wanna get back into the subject of the importance of contending for the faith in these last days. Now you'll remember last week I put this chart up there that Jude is the fifth one in a series of five epistles that were penned to the diaspora that had been scattered around in really 10 major cities in the ancient world, beginning with the, with the Babylonian conquest approximately 600 BC. And so these epistles were written to these Jews who were living in other parts of the ancient world other than Jerusalem and the Holy Land, and, and they made up the balance of the early church. So it wasn't probably until, you know, you, you get into the 100s and beyond, that's when now the church starts, the makeup of the church starts to change from predominantly Jewish to predominantly Gentile. And so the early, the early Jewish believers were, were really assailed uh, and, uh, and sought after by, in the New Testament, you'll hear them refer to the Judaizers, those who were seeking to bring them back into full-blown Judaism. And so, these epistles were written in response and to deal with specific issues that these Jewish Christians were facing. And so you have Hebrews, First and Second Peter, James, and Jude. So these are, this is the fifth in the series of the Jewish epistles. Then uh, I put this chart up here last week because I wanted to illustrate to you that we always think that we have an infinite, infinite amount of time you know, to, to do what we are called to do, to get things right. Um, but when you look at God's plan, uh, you'll remember I, I exposed you to this term that I use, you know, in my understanding of, of biblical history called arcs of time. God reveals his plan to humanity in what I call arcs of time, and that we are currently living in that period of time that the scriptures refer to as the age of the Gentiles. And you'll remember last week that the age of the Gentiles began with the Babylonian conquest of, of Israel, 
uh, approximately 600 BC and continues all the way up to the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, right? So it, has, it actually goes beyond the rapture of the church. And the, the code key to understanding the timeline and to understanding the particular divisions of this timeline are given to us in Daniel chapter 9 in the prophecy of the 70 weeks. And so, you know, as I'm moving through right now, I'm working through a YouTube series on the book of Revelation, and it's, I've completely changed my thinking on a lot of those things there. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that there are a lot of things in, in, in the book of Revelation that they just give you a statement, but they don't really explain they don't give you the details, and that's because God, God presumes and assumes that the believer who's really interested in those things is going to be quite familiar with the scriptures, and what's just alluded to or given a brief description in the book of Revelation doesn't need to be repeated again because it's already been given to us somewhere in the past. And so this is one of those passages. In order to understand what's going on, in the book of Revelation, you have to become familiar with what the Old Testament, oh, let me go back here, teaches about this one period here, right? And so this is the, the 70 weeks here plus the 70 year dispersion. And it's all given to us there. So just kind of to set where we are in all of this timeline so we can really understand that the time is short and the next thing on the agenda for the church, that is those who are truly, uh, uh, those who have truly been called by the Father, uh, have been, uh, excuse me, yeah, called by the Father, set apart by the Holy Spirit and preserved in Christ Jesus. Remember, that's the first triad that we looked at last week. Uh, there's, there, the next thing on the agenda for us is called the rapture of the church or the catching away. And then after that, uh, there is an, an indeterminate amount of time, which is, which is, I believe, a major reason why we really, all of us, need to take seriously the need to contend for the faith. I'll review that in a minute. And then finally, followed by the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation leading up to the second coming of Christ. So where do we fit in in all of this? Well, you'll remember last Sunday that I said that beginning with the apostolic age, Again, in the church, uh, here is when we have those writings that tell us we are in the last days. And so uh, that would be the apostolic age, the, the church of Ephesus, and then we find ourselves here in the Laodicean age. So we're, we've, we've traveled 1991 years, give or take, in the period of the last days. And so it's important for us to to, to set our minds on this, to understand, we, we, we don't, we, it's important for us to, to be cognizant of the things that are going on around us and to take those things and plug them in to the arcs of time that God has revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. So just a, a brief review, the original intent was to discourse the common salvation, you know, just kind of build up the saints, on the, on the doctrine of salvation. Uh, but the Holy Spirit redirected him uh, to change not only the subject, but his tone as well, because actually 
it's hard to read on the page, but what the Holy Spirit, through Judas, remember his real name was Judas, is bringing to the Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was sent was a rebuke. He was rebuking them. Uh, and so he was, you know what, get busy. They had not heeded the prior warnings of the apostles that false teachers would come into the church and begin to slow and begin the slow process of recalibrating the gospel and the teaching of the apostles. So now he comes to deliver them. He, he, he's under the direction of the Holy Spirit. He comes and he delivers a rebuke for them uh, that they had not heeded, they had not heeded or paid due diligence to what the to the teachings of the apostles, and now uh, the false prophets that were prophesied would come into them had come in among them, and they were beginning to exert their influence in the churches in the, of the diaspora. So they were already being influenced by the false teachers unawares. So he, he pivots here under the direction of the Holy Spirit and moves from, okay, we're gonna talk about common elements of the faith, to, to exhort you, and that's a strong word, uh, to earnestly plead with you, uh, to order you to contend earnestly for the faith, and that is to, to, put, your, to put your heart and soul uh, into, into, into defending the faith, the content of the faith. It's so important, and, and, uh, and it's hard to do that sometimes, right? There are things that you do, you, you know there's a big difference in outcomes when you take up a task and you pour your heart and soul into it, uh, th that's a, that brings a different outcome than, you know, I gotta get this done, so let me just get it over with, right? And so that's what the idea here is, is that Judas, Jude, under the direction of the Holy Spirit says, you really need to pour your heart and soul in this because there's a lot at stake here. So you must know how to recognize the enemy because the reality is, is, and that's what Jude is about, they don't walk around with black hats on. And here's a couple of quotes that really drive the point home. The first one is by G.K. Chesterton. He says, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. And another one from Charlotte Bront who says, I can be on guard against my enemies, but God deliver me from my friends. And so they don't walk around with black hats on. And so. The only way to recognize them is you have to be very familiar with what they are trying to recalibrate. That's the only way to know oh, that, that, that that's not right, you know. Uh, and you, but that takes a a high degree of familiarity with God's word, uh, because if you don't, then that that slow, subtle erosion process begins to take place, and before you know it, you're far removed from where you started. So. The third triad that we, we closed with last week says this in Jude 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so this week I'm giving you English Standard Version. I'd like to, to jump around in this because it, it helps us to understand the, the, the different nuances when we look at different translations. So certain persons have crept in. These men had crept in unnoticed or they came in without, uh, because nobody was paying attention, nobody should be looking for them. And Sovereign Grace Church, I know that you are all very 
you are very comfortable and settled in here and you're, you have confidence in that you have a, a doctrinally sound pastor and you have doctrinally sound deacons and you know the, the junior church teachers are doctrinally sound, the Christian school teachers are town, sound, but you should never allow that to make you complacent that you are, not, that you drop your guard against who could come into that front door and begin to very subtly undermine not only the doctrinal integrity of this church, but to undermine your doctrinal integrity because if they can undermine your doctrinal integrity, they'll be able to undermine your practice. And that's the way it works. That's the way it's always worked. As it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, nothing is that has not been in the past nor will be in the future. And so it's important to understand that. So he has a specific group of mind and that the manner of these false teachers, straight out the term ungodliness is used, but it basically just says they are unbelievers. And they change grace into a license, a freedom to commit sin. And there's this game that's played, especially now understand the context, it's Judaizers coming in to Jewish Christians to try and, and recalibrate their new faith into taking them back to Judaism. And I'll show you how Paul answers that in Romans chapter six, verse one, in just a few minutes, we'll get there. So they change grace into license. They deny Christ as master and understand that their, that their denial of Christ is not a vocal, blatant uh, denial. They, they work very subtly. They, it's a, a, a really intense and highly complicated cloak and dagger operation. And so, uh, but you could tell that you could tell the influence and their methodology is effectual because of what the outcome actually ends up being. And, and uh, Peter, he prophesied about this and the effect that they would have on the church and in the church if the church did not take heed to his, uh, to his warning. And so in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, I'm just going to read it again. But false prophets also arose among the people. Now he's, he's pointing these Jewish believers back to the history that they were familiar with, the history recorded in the, in the, uh, in the Tanakh, right? The, uh, the Torah and, and the law and the prophets. Uh, but there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing on themselves swift destruction. And, and notice here what, their, what, the, what, what the foretold impact, their impact would be among the true believers. And many will follow their sensuality, you see? So they would have their effect, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. Okay, so now we move into the fourth triad, and let's look at their trajectory. So in Jude 5, now here's where we're gonna have to start we're going to go back now into the Old Testament because obviously we're not as familiar with the Jewish history as, as Jews, most especially of that day, were. So he's using things that they know full well. He doesn't have to spend a lot of time fleshing, fleshing it out for them. So we're going to do a little bit of that today because we're Gentiles, right? All right. Now I want, you, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now just to give you some historical context, 
So you'll find a lot of brief parallelisms here that are also talked about in, in all of the Jewish epistles, but most specifically in the book of Hebrews. So we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but the author of Hebrews wrote the epistle to the Hebrews because they were actually contemplating a return to Judaism. The, the, the effect of the false teachers upon these Hebrews was becoming so effectual that they were actually contemplating a return to Judaism, somehow mixing it in, you know, with, with Jesus as the Messiah. So it's within this context that these two verses in Hebrews chapter, first one is in Hebrews chapter 5, second one is in Hebrews chapter 3, that I'll read to you. So in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, we read, For those, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And so you see here the effect that these Judaizers are having upon the church here is they actually slowed their forward progress and they began to turn their attention to other things. And then if you were to go on, and this is a, this is a real something that we, uh, we have to keep in mind. So actually, if you have your Bibles, turn in them to Hebrews chapter 6 for a minute to something that I want to point out to you that just came to me recently as I was restudying the, you know, the book of Hebrews. This is a serious issue. This is a major reason why you need to, you need to follow your pastor, you need to follow, you know, he, he's, he's uh, in many, many sense, a pastor's job is to be like a Jewish mother, right? You nag and nag and nag and nag, because you, not because you're just a nag, but because you want the very best for those, for your children, so to speak. And Pastor Roman, in a very real sense, is to you now a spiritual father, right? And so you need to, you need to first prove your spiritual father's words by the Holy Scriptures and then do them. Because there's a real danger here, and I never really, now, after walking with Christ for over 30 years, I never really saw this until just recently. But look at, what he's, look at what the author says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Now, as a result of that verse that we just read in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, and on, he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary discussion, the, element, uh, the discussion of the elementary principles of, God, uh, of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God of doctrines of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So we take, we take that last statement, if God permits, and we spin it this way. We'll get back to it if we have time. But what, what actually the, the, uh, the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, is uh, that you know once you, once you fall away into apathy, right? There's no guarantee that God is not going to leave you there to chastise you. So there's no guarantee that if you let these things slip, that God is going to help you recover from that slip. It has nothing to do with salvation, right? You're saved by grace, you're saved by the blood of Christ. But we also know that there is a time coming when each one of us is going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. And so what ends up happening here 
is if you let these things slip and, and you just go on your merry way, then you'll find you, and I think everyone here has seen this in their lives, when they let the things of God slip in their lives, when they let, let their study of the Holy Scriptures slip in their lives, it's not long after before the practice and the lifestyle begins to slip. You see? And what, what the author of Hebrews is saying there, you know what? You can go to a certain point with that where to chastise you. God will leave you there. He will not allow you to recover from that. Nothing to do with salvation, but it will affect you on the day of rewards or loss of rewards. So this is an important thing because, you see, this is what, this is what the, the, the game plan of the enemy is. The game plan of the enemy is not to get you to renounce your faith because he knows he can't do that. But if he can pull you back through, these, through this methodology, then he can diffuse your witness and your work for the kingdom and uh, he can diffuse you of your rewards. Anyway, so that, I spent more time there than I wanted to, so I'll, I'm just going to go over Hebrews chapter verse 6 and that's basically talking about how you know what uh, don't assume and this assumption is for those of those of you who are believers yes the, the but the author basically says there you know God took X amount of people out of the land of Egypt uh, but they all didn't make it into the Holy Land right they couldn't make it into the Holy Land because they they, they, they didn't enter in by faith they didn't have the faith to enter in so what's he saying there? He's not, he's not saying to you, you better watch out, you may be one of those people. What he's saying is, don't assume that everyone who walks through that front door and who has the, you know, the flattering speech, we'll be talking about that next session, and who has you know, all of the Jesus lingo, you know, and they have the right version of the Bible, you know, and their, their skirts are at the proper length to the knee, whatever that is, that they are that they are a fellow believer. Don't assume that, and that's what the author of Hebrews here. Okay, so now jumping on to Jude 6. So uh, he destroyed those who did not believe. And so um, we don't need to get into that, right? Because I don't think we should, do we? I mean, what are the things the Jews did in the wilderness? Some of the things that some of the things that they saw and some of their responses. Well, there was the whole thing with manna, right? You know, first of all, God, you know, he, he, uh, he, do, he visits 10 plagues on the nation of Egypt. He walks his people out of Egypt with, with as much of the Egyptian treasure as they could carry. And he leads them in a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night and takes them to the Red Sea and parts the Red Sea. And by the way, when the Bible says that was a sea, it means it was a sea, not a shallow swamp. And you want to see how shockingly the church has departed from the faith. If you, if you turn to the Bible atlas in the back of your Bible, uh, many of you, many of those Bibles have a, have a, uh, have a, a proposed map of the journey of the Exodus that actually takes the Jews to a shallow swamp rather than the parting of the Red Sea. And then they get over the other side and they're hungry and, and God gives them manna. So all of these things and, and, and 
for the most part, it didn't profit them because as the Hebrew, the author of Hebrews says, it wasn't mixed with faith, you see? And then as a result, you know, if you were to go read where David talks about, you know, the whole journey of Israel in the book of Psalms, that in response, God sent leanness into their heart. They became less and less capable of understanding the true spiritual dynamic of what was happening all around them. So there's that. So Jude says, uh, don't assume that everyone who comes into you pretending to be a teacher or, you know, an apostle, which was a big thing in this day, uh, is, is automatically a believer. You need to keep your spiritual guard up. Then he goes on in verse 6 and says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains um, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so this is referring to that event that's recorded in Genesis chapter 6 where, where fallen angels, X amount of fallen angels, uh, according to the book of Enoch, I think it was somewhere around 250, not that that's trustworthy, but they came and they, and they had sexual intercourse with human women and there was an offspring that was produced uh, that, that, that is called in the Nephilim. And they were, that's really the genesis of all of the, you know, the hero, the ancient Greek mythologies and all of those heroes, Hercules and, you know, all that stuff. That's, the, it's Genesis is really here in Genesis chapter 6. And so uh, it, it says in Genesis chapter 6 that the only one who was preserved, the only line that was preserved through it was the line of, Mo, of Noah. It says there that Noah was perfect in all of his generations. And so he was whole, his genetic line was whole, and they were not, they were not corrupted by this um, structure. And then where it says there in Jude 6, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. I think it's a, a misinterpretation to take the great day as the day of the great white throne judgment. I think it's very clear in Revelations chapter 9 that these, uh, that these angels will be released upon the earth during the time of the great tribulation. And they will be, they will be let loose on humanity, everyone that does not have the mark of God on their forehead. They're going to torment. They're going to torment for five months. And the torment will be so bad that people will, will, will try and commit suicide just to get out of pain, but God is going to supernaturally prevent them from being able to commit suicide. This is what this is referring to, the judgment of the great day. All right, so we have that. Then we have Jude 7 that says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So I'll just walk you through, I want to keep track of time, I'll just walk you through, you know, these passages. So most people think of Sodom and Gomorrah, they think of the, you know, the perverse sexual practices that were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, specifically, you know, the, the, the practice of homosexuality, and that's, that's what ultimately led to God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. No. That was the result of the, of the judicial hardening that God had begun, that visited Sodom and Gomorrah with. 
because they had been the recipients of his grace. And so if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 14, you would see the account there of where some kings, one of them from Elam, who was a cousin of Shem, came and they, and they, they captured that region and they took all of their wealth, they took their women and children, their livestock, and they, and they, and they took them away. And, and Sodom and Gomorrah was the city, was one of the cities that, that they overthrew and, you know, and carried away all the spoil. Well, uh, Abram, Abraham, God used Abraham to go and to, con and to conquer all of those nations and then to return the goods to uh, those, those communities that had had them stolen. And so Sodom and Gomorrah were, there was a region that Abraham restored their goods to them or God showed favor to them by restoring their goods to them. And so they had been a recipient of, of, uh, of God's grace. And then I just want to turn, if you have your device or your Bible, to Ezekiel chapter 16 and show you here what ultimately was the cause of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction. If you sat under my teaching, then you've heard this from me before, but you know, repetition is good, especially when you get older. So in Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning at verse 49, and the context here is, how God is, is bringing an, an indictment against the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the, through the prophetic work of Ezekiel. And he says here in verse 49, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. And so you see here the, the, the commission by these inhabitants of abomination comes at the end of this list. They were pride. They were haughty. God had blessed them with incredible material abundance. And instead of using it to do God's work, they used it uh, to, just, uh, to just fatten their own hearts. And as a result, God sends leanness into his heart. His, his, he loosens his restraint, and they fall further and further into debauchery and sin, and finally, God takes them away. And so the sin, at the end, actually ends up being the punishment uh, that God had brought upon them as a result of their disobedience. All right, so I know that was a lot, but let's see if we can draw some corollaries here and apply it to ourselves. All right, what do these groups have in common? Here's where I'd like to get some input from you guys if you, if you care to have some input into it. What did these groups have in common? Okay, well, they all believed in God. They all liked cupcakes. What, what did they have in common? Doug? Okay, Doug? They all lacked faith, anyone else? Okay, well let me give you some of the things that I came up with here. They were all witnesses of a special manifestation of God's grace, were they not? Now think about this, so 
I mean, you know, I already told you about some of the things which you know full well the, the, uh, the Jews, the Jewish people in the Exodus witnessed the marvelous things they witnessed. But think about the angels who, who rebelled and who, you know, who engaged in, in sexual relations with, with, uh, with human women. Look at their, they have almost full, <laughs> they had almost full unrestricted view to the majesty of God. You know, that's why, that's why angels, the fallen angels are irredeemable because there's no room for faith in them. Because what's faith? Faith is the evidence of things, uh, of faith is the substance of hope, the evidence of things not seen, right? But they, they see God face to face, so there's no room for faith, therefore they're irredeemable, right? And then, uh, you know, we just went over Sodom and Gomorrah. They all rebelled and crossed the line they should not have crossed, right? And they all took the blessing of God and destroyed themselves with it. So that's important to notice. Now, let's take this a little bit closer to home. Some axioms, and these are, I don't know if any one of you have had, to, had a chance to listen to the late Pastor Stephen Armstrong, Verse by Verse Ministries, but these are some axioms that he, he draws from this that are right on point. When God gives us blessing and grace and prosperity, he gives it to us in order to free us up to serve him and his agenda, not our agenda. That's what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. When we take the blessing, grace, and prosperity that God gives us to serve our own agenda, then that blessing, grace, and prosperity becomes the very instrument of God's chastisement upon us, right? And then finally, uh, God chastens us by loosing his restraint upon us and, the, and thus begins the process of apostasy or falling away. And so, you know, God blesses you with a good career. He blesses you with material blessings. And, and God does that so to free us up so that we might serve him. You know, we don't, we don't have to worry about where our next scrap of bread is going to come from. God provides that. And he provides it so that that frees us up so that we might serve him. But if we take that prosperity and use it to serve our own agenda, then God, then God will use that prosperity to chastise us, right? And so you've heard, you've heard me say oftentimes over the years, you know, if, you don't be, if you're not careful with your possessions, uh, your possessions will end up owning you, right? And that's why we have the incredible debt slavery there's no other word for it, beloved. It's slavery. The incredible debt slavery that, that most people in America and even the world are laboring under now. And you know that your, your debt is an inverse proportion to the amount of time that you have to seek God and to serve God. You know that's true. You know that's true. Okay, let's move on. The fifth triad, Judea. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And in verse 9, but when Michael, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So that brings us to, to the first apocryphal quote in Jude, which is the assumption of Moses. So just to give you some background information on this, in, early in the first century, 
there was a story in the Testament of Moses which was a Jewish writing. Jude's account seems to give allusion to that legend. Because some of the pages of this testament are missing, the following Jewish writings shed some light on the aforementioned. And so these, these next two quotes here are from Jewish sources, the Targum and you know the, the, the Mishnah in Jewish writings. This first one says there was a dispute about an hour before Moses died. It was between the angel of death associated with the adversary Satan and Michael, Satan's opponent. Michael is the angel considered to be the defender of Israel in Jewish tradition. And then the Targum says this. It says that Michael was put in authority of watching Moses' tomb. It is thought that the testament of Moses, which is obviously not scripture, added that Michael was assigned to bury Moses. And so the dispute was, at the death of Moses, there was this dispute that arose between Michael, who was, who was tasked with burying Moses. And, you know, he's in, in Jewish lore, he was considered to be the burier of the dead. Uh, that that uh, Satan came and, and tried to lay claim to Moses because Moses had committed murder when he had killed uh, when he had killed the taskmaster who was who was beating, you know, one of the Jewish slaves. So that's where this assumption comes. And as I said last week, we don't have the fragment that the fragments that are in possession don't actually have that quote in them. They've been lost, but we know that they were there because they're referred to in the Jewish in the Jewish historical writings and commentaries, and also referred to many times in the writings of the early church fathers. Okay, so what was, what's Judas's point here in referencing this apocryphal work? So there you have the verse again, and then you have this comment by uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum who says, Michael, although he is an archangel, did not rail against Satan because positionally, Satan is greater than Michael. Satan is a cherub and Michael is an angel. Cherubs are positionally greater than angels. Michael, although he is the archangel, the one who has authority over all other angels knew his place in the angelic hierarchy. Therefore, Michael did not rail against someone greater than himself, even though Satan was a fallen creature. Since Satan, even though fallen, was the anointed cherub, he still had personal dignity that Michael respected. And so it's important to keep this in mind because uh, we'll look at this in just a few minutes. So these false teachers, let's you know, kind of try and keep things in the same pile here as we move along. Their aim is to lead God's people to defile the flesh by encouraging them to sin. To lead God's people to deny God's word and rejecting the apostles' teachers by embracing their skewed religious teachings. And so uh, you'll notice there it says the bait and switch tactic addressed in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Let me show you how, how subtle and, and brilliant their methodology can be at times. So if you, take your, if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 6, there's just one statement there that I want to read to you, one verse, and I want to explain what's happening here. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, we have this interesting question. 
that, that Paul begins this chapter with. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And so what Paul is doing here is, is he, he was speaking to the, the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. He had never, never visited there. They had become a, a, you know, a, a preeminent church even by this time. And they were kind of put off by the fact that, that, that Paul had not visited them. So he's moving through the gospel there and he's, he's addressing the, the methodology that the Judaizers would employ to kind of begin to skew, skew the faith. So it's important to understand that Paul would visit a city, he would visit a, you know, a region, he would preach the gospel, he would build the saints up, and then he would move on. Now following behind him were always the Judaizers who would come in and say, yeah, what, what, Paul, is, what Paul taught you about Jesus is right, but it wasn't complete there's still more that you have to do. And so here, he's anticipating, he's anticipating the argument, well, on the basis of what he said in Romans chapter five, that death came to all through the sin of one man, so too the grace that came was superabounding because it over, overcame the sins of many or a multitude of sins, and that the access into it is by faith, so he's assuming and answering the question, well, if that's the case, then we should be able to keep sinning because the more we sin, the more grace comes. But what he's actually doing there, he's actually addressing uh, an argument from the Judaic logic which says, well, wait a minute, the two can't be right because how can you, how, if, you uh, if you can continue to sin and grace comes, then how can you ever be righteous before God? And so what they're trying to do is point out a flaw here in, in Paul's reasoning or in the reasoning of the gospel. But he counters that and says, no, 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 this is the right way to understand it. And so they're very sly and very subtle in their manipulation of the truth, right? Well, if I'm saved by grace and once saved, all saved, always saved, then hey, the more I sin, the more grace comes my way, right? That's, that's the basic argument. That's kind of like, a, did, would anyone here agree with that? And on its face, it would seem to be a contradiction of everything that we know about God and about righteousness and about holiness. And that's the argument that they were trying to use to dislodge the Romans from their understanding of salvation by grace through faith alone. So that's the game, the bait and switch game. So they lead God's people to deny God's word and reject the apostles' teaching by embracing their skewed teachings, and they lead God's people to be disrespectful and rejection of God's ordained authority. So, so that's a big one. So just as the fallen angels sought to corrupt women's bodies and thus the human gene pool to prevent the coming of the Messiah through the seed of the woman, uh, these men aim to corrupt God's people by corrupting the gene pool of God's word. The contrast, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally like bruised beasts, and these things they corrupt themselves. Or, here's another New Living Translation that says, but these people scoff at things they don't understand. 
like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instinct tells them. And so they bring about their own destruction. And so they're totally devoid of the concept of spiritual realities and a spiritual worldview. You have to understand, going all the way back to the beginning, that these people are unbelievers. They have no concept of spiritual realities. What they see when they look at you, what they see when they look at the content of your faith is something that they can take advantage of to gain some sort of personal advantage for themselves. You know this from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, and they are foolishness to him. So they don't have the ability, and unless you think that you're high and mighty now because you have the ability to understand uh, spiritual truths because God has enabled you to understand and to see things in God's word that these false teachers cannot see. They don't have the capacity to see it. Remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, that you were once dead in your sins and trespasses, and God through his mercy has made you alive when you were dead and you walked according to the power of the prince of the world, that same spirit that now works in the sons of the disobedience. You get that? You were once a child of the disobedience. But God has had mercy on you. He had mercy on you, not because of anything you did, but because God had bestowed his grace upon you, made you spiritually alive, and made you capable of seeing your need for a, salva for a savior and turning to Christ for faith and salvation. See, that's the essence, that's the, that's the whole gospel. And that's what these false teachers are out to skew. Well, yeah, you have to receive Jesus as your savior, but you really should observe the Sabbath. But you really shouldn't go to movies. But you really shouldn't drink wine with your meal. See, that's how they work come in very slowly and they add things and they add things and and Paul in Galatians and in other places pronounces a curse upon those who would move towards trusting in anything other than the saving grace of God it's grace plus nothing grace plus anything equals a return to the law So these, they're spiritually devoid of the concept of spiritual reality and a spiritual worldview. They operate entirely on sensorial information, physical instinct. They do not have the spirit of God. They cannot understand what God has enabled you as a believer to understand. And so in verse 11, Jude pronounces woe upon them. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So to travel in the footsteps of Cain, who was propelled by jealousy, hatred, and envy, he wanted God to accept his tithe on his terms. And you can find the story in Genesis chapter 4. His vocation became his idol. Now notice this about that whole mess back there, that when, when Eve and Adam ate of the, that fruit, that what was forbidden to them, their eyes were open, and what's the first thing they did? Anybody remember? 
What did they cover themselves with? Fig leaves. Why would anyone use a fig leaf as a cover, right? You know what, I'm not even going to go down that road. But needless to say, so what is, but what does God do? God says, yeah, yeah no fig leaf. He, what does he do? He kills an animal and he gives them coverings made of animal skin. Thus, God is the one who really provided the first prototype of the covering, which was a covering by blood. See, God is the one who instituted the whole concept of a covering by blood. Now, the blood, the, the sacrifices under the whole Levitical, you know, the old covenant were not meant to take away sin, but to cover them until the time of the Redeemer would come. And so God is the one who institutes the sacrifice. And, and uh, Abel, what does he bring? He brings a lamb. He brings the first fruit and he brings a lamb. Thus, Abel offers up to God not only a tithe of his first fruits, but also a sacrifice. Whereas Cain just brought his own produce from his field. So he gave a tithe, but not a sacrifice. You see? And so God responds to him when he gets all upset because God is not, you know, he's not looking favorably upon the fact that Cain, obviously, as God well knew, did not feel the need to offer up the sacrifice in the prescribed manner that, that Abel had. And so God says to him, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up in Genesis 4-7? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So in order to really understand what is, what is being said there, uh, I, I, want to, I want to point you, I want to, point you to uh, one, of, one of the sessions I have up on YouTube. It was the Easter session where I talk about something called the Threshold Covenant. That's the proper way to understand this, is you know, there, there weren't temples in the past the place where people would make sacrifices would be at the threshold of their domicile. And in many of these ancient homes, it was actually a little, kind of like a little bowl where they would slay the sacrifice there and the blood would run into, into the threshold. And what would happen is there were two ways that that was important. First of all, uh, when you were welcoming a, a prominent guest into your home, you would sacrifice this animal at the threshold, the door of your domicile, and the person would step over, cross over, or pass over the blood on the threshold and thus be welcomed into the home as a member of the family. So that was, that was one way. The other way was when a, a king had conquered a land, he would travel through the district with a band of executioners and every home that had sacrificed an animal at the threshold of the entrance of the, to their home, it was their statement of saying, we recognize you as our sovereign. Those who did not, he sent executioners in to kill those in the house. Kind of ring familiar? That's really, I want to challenge you to study that out because that's actually the proper way to understand the concept of the Passover. Okay, so but you can find that there, and I'll just leave it at that. But what God is saying to Cain here, that, that you have a choice to make. 
either I'm going to be your God, I'm going to be your master, or sin is going to be your master. The way to make me your master is to do the good thing that your brother Abel did. He gave me not only a tithe, but he offered the sacrifice in the way that I ordained the practice to happen. All right. So then to run the same road as Balaam, to rush headlong, driven by greed. You know, I sat there, I went back through numbers this morning, and I'm counting through the number of times that, you know, that Balaam tried to figure out what God was telling him as a concerned cursing. Five times. Even one more time after the donkey said, what are you, an idiot? I just saved your life and you're beating me with a stick. And so, so Balak was all about the money. He said, well, maybe God will change his mind. Well, maybe God will change his mind. Well, maybe God will change his mind. Finally, you know, what happens is there's no way God's going to change his mind because these people are holy. They're blessed. They're set apart. So what does he do? And you can, you, if you were to jump to, uh, we're not going to do there because we're pretty much out of time. In, in Numbers chapter 31, verse 8, you see that when, when they came into the land, Balaam was listed as casualty. Why? And if you were to go to read in 16, that he figured out, he said, you know what? God is not going to, not going to curse these people. He's not going to allow me to curse the people on his behalf. But here's what you can do. You know, those Moabite women, they're real babes. You know, they're really nice-looking women. Maybe you guys ought to get together and start having dances or whatever. And, and it happened. It worked. Through the counsel of Balaam, in that way, the nation fell into apostasy. You see? He was all about the money. And then they took the path of the rebellion as that of Korah. I'm going to read this verse because this verse is really important for us to understand in Numbers chapter 16 because it is an attitude that I have found uh, in the church to be a prevalent attitude in the church. So obviously Moses is the one who was appointed as the leader. He was the one who would receive the direct communication. Aaron and his sons would be the one, ones who would offer up the sacrifice and minister in the tabernacle. But look at what Korah and his clan says in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 3. Actually, I'll, I'll read right from verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Elab, and the son of Palath, the sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. So they incited a rebellion here. And look at what they say. Look at what their, what their argument is. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourself, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And so the statement is true. They were all holy. They were all God's people. But that does not mean that God had all appointed them to have the same function in the people of God. 
And so they rebelled and led a rebellion against the authority structure of God. No, you, you're all the people of God, but God has appointed an authority structure over you. He has appointed a civil authority structure over you. He has appointed a, a, uh, a family structure over you. And he's appointed a ecclesiastical authority structure over you. It does not mean that they're better than you. It does not mean that they're more holy than you. It does not mean any of those things. But God help you if you violate it. You will come under the chastisement of God. So be very careful about that. See, that's what these guys get you to do. They get you to question, hey, why should I have to listen to him? I'm a believer. I have the Holy Spirit living within me. Yeah, but this is the authority structure that God has put in place. All right. Let's, uh, let's, let's wind this all down. So just keep these things in mind. They slide in subtly. They don't wear black hats. They skew practice by first skewing doctrine. They count and use God's, pe God's people's ignorance of the scriptures and turn it against them. How effective has it been in our time? Well, just look at the mainline denominations. Can you even call them churches anymore? I don't even know what you would call them. I mean, you can't call them a club. At least if they were a club, you could go in and have a beer or something like that. What is it? It's, you know, mainline denominations are gone. As a matter of fact, they're basically corrupt. The acceptance of perverse sexual practices in the church. Look at the, you know, the, the schisms that are happening in evangelical Christianity today among this issue. Matter of fact, those who hold to traditional sexual relations, one man, one woman for life in marriage. We're in the minority now in the professing evangelical church and the experiment, experientially driven mindset. You know, in you younger guys, you're more susceptible to this because you're the multimedia, iPad, smartphone generation. And it seems like part of this has had the effect on you that you're able to relate to the multimedia generated word rather than the printed word, you know? I mean, I, I, when I read off of a book, it's, it's, it's different reading on a Kindle. I think it actually enters in the brain through a different pathway. So I think that you are more susceptible to this experientially driven, uh, you know, apostasy that is happening. All right, so how do we contend then? Well, we're back to being the broken record on this by earnestly coming to know what we believe and why you believe it. The once delivered faith, the Holy Scriptures, and I'm back to this again, the statement of faith of this church. Here it is. This is the perfect study guide for you to do. And I want to challenge you parents. I want to challenge you young parents, old parents, in-between parents, and even non-parents, right? Take this document and sit down with it. And, and I, no, I'm the, I got it. Pastor Roman is expressed to me last week he's willing to make as many copies as necessary. 
take this document, Let's make a commitment, say, you know what, as part of my devotions today, I'm going to read one page of this doctrine. It'll take you three weeks to read through it, right? And then as you go through it, if there are parts there that you don't understand, make a notation there. And then speak to Pastor Roman, speak to one of your deacons. They'd be more than happy to understand it. Do that, and then try doing this. Okay, um, I just read what it says on the doctrine of the scriptures. Now I'm going to explain this, figure out a way to explain this to my 10-year-old daughter. You know what? Here's the thing. If you can figure that out and figure it out well, it means you have a good grasp of what's on here. So I want to challenge you to do that because, see, this is, that's just one example of what it is to contend earnestly for the faith. For who? For ourselves, right? So that we're not hoodwinked, you know, by these grace changes. For our children and grandchildren. Because here's the thing. Sooner or later, I'm going to transition to eternity. You're going to transition to eternity. And what are we leaving behind for our children and our grandchildren? Are we going to let them have their ear, or are we going to immunize them before we get called into, into eternity? And then, as I mentioned last week, for those that we will leave behind in the rapture, as there is this unspecified amount of time between the rapture of the church and the onset of the Great Tribulation, where there is apparently no organized evangelism going on on planet Earth. What they, what they will have, the people who live in that period, is what we leave behind. We should strive, we should be intentional about saying, you know what, I'm gonna do my very best to leave behind good, solid stuff for them that they can access. And then potentially, tribulation evangelists and saints. Imagine if through our faithfulness, in learning this and in passing it on, God would use some of our faithfulness and using it to actually bring up the two witnesses and the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will begin the next worldwide evangelism program in the Great Tribulation. That would be a great thing in my estimation. And so I'm going to be intentional about it. And I'm asking you, Pastor Roman is asking you, the deacons are asking you to be intentional about this. And so I absolutely believe in Pastor Roman's approach to this. Is It's good that we, I've discoursed all this to you, but I'm going to ask you now to make a commitment. Will you make a commitment today to start to do this? If you will, would you please stand up? Don't make the commitment because God is here as witness. Don't stand up if you're not willing to make the commitment because if you make the commitment half-heartedly and you, I'm just going to stand up because everybody else is standing up and I don't want to look like an apostate fool, then don't do it because then you'll end up on the business end of God's chastisement that you're going to do your very best to contend earnestly for the faith from this point forward because it's, it's, it's critical for you, it's critical for your children and grandchildren, it's critical for those who will be left behind after God calls us home, and it's critical 
for the tribulation period, for those who will come up and take up the mantle after we are gone. 